This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. Today's episode is dedicated to our occasional series called Northwest Classics. It's where we dig into the stories behind an iconic album from the Pacific Northwest. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll talk about Soundgarden. Super announced the biggest selling record in 1994. It outsells Pearl Jam, it outsells Nirvana. But first, Heart. KEXP DJ Marco Collins talks with longtime Seattle music journalist and author Charles R. Cross. His biography on heart is called Kicking and Dreaming, a story of heart, soul, and rock and roll. They focused on heart's 1975 album called Dreamboat Annie. What's interesting about that record, just in terms of timing, is that it's stuck in 1975, but the truth is it's actually a 1976 record in America. Um, It was released on a little tiny label out of Vancouver, B.C. called Mushroom Records and recorded in Vancouver, B.C., yet we're going to claim this absolutely as a Northwest record because it was created by two young women who grew up in Bellevue and um, are as Seattle as you can find. I love that they grew up in Bellevue. Yeah, I don't think anybody realizes that Anne and Nancy grew up on the east side. Not only did they grow up in Bellevue, they grew up in a split-level house not very far from Lake Sammamish, and it could not be more of a suburban milieu. Um, their dad was an English teacher at the local junior high school. Many uh, people actually knew Anne and Nancy first because their dad had been an English their, the English teacher for a lot of people in this area. And uh, they, in my mind, are really our first Seattle rock stars. We can claim Jimi Hendrix because Jimi lived here for two-thirds of his life. And right. Nobody's ever going to be greater in the Northwest than Jimi Hendrix. But Hart, those two women are the first rock stars we produce in the Northwest. I love the story you told me uh, in another era about the Vancouver, B.C. connection with these girls. Basically, what happened is that Hart formed in Seattle, in the East Side, and there'd been a couple incarnations of a variety of bands. There'd been a band called White Heart that had some of the guys that were in the original Hart. And uh, then Anne and, and, you know, these four other guys moved to Vancouver, B.C. with the idea that they would break through there. Okay. And part of the reason for that is important to understand Seattle history. In the 70s in Seattle, this was a dead town. Nothing was happening. No bands were breaking through. There were taverns. There were a few things, but nothing was happening. And Vancouver was actually a bit more of a cosmopolitan town at that point. There were more bars, more nightclubs. People went out more. They did more stuff. And so Hart could make more money playing the clubs of Vancouver, B.C. than they could playing here locally. So they moved there with the idea that they were going to get a break. And they did. They became the most popular band in Vancouver, B.C. But at that point, let's be clear, they were a cover band. And what they were popular for, for the most part, was covering Led Zeppelin songs. They would weed in a few originals, but they would play four sets a night in nightclubs of Vancouver. Imagine that. Ann Wilson, I think, and I absolutely would say this with an exclamation point on it, she is the greatest singer to ever come out of the Northwest, bar none. 
Um, I love Sean Smith. I love Kurt Cobain. I love Blaine Staley and Chris Cornell. Ann Wilson could sing the ass off of all those guys. Um, she is just an incredible singer. And imagine her at 19 years old in these Vancouver clubs singing for five hours straight. And she smoked back then. Wow. You know, so it was quite an effort. Doing all cover songs. That's amazing. Doing almost all cover songs. But slowly they started to weed in their originals. And they wrote what became this album. And they signed to a really tiny label that was part of a recording studio that's up there in Vancouver, Mushroom. And uh, this record came out. And it came out in Canada first. Part of the reason the record even became a success, though, in Canada, of all places, um, was because there are Canadian content laws that forced radio stations in Canada to play a certain amount of Canadian artists. And there were enough Canadians on the record, the engineers, producers, and other things, that this record qualified as a Canadian record. And... It got big in Canada. Their first starring gig ever was in Montreal. They open up and play in Montreal, and they're like suddenly stars. They couldn't even believe it because they had not really heard their record on very many radio stations. But um, Magic Man was what took off in Canada and made them stars. Talk about the content of that song. What What's that song all about? Well, Anne moved to Vancouver, B.C., in part because the boyfriend she had at the time was a draft evader, and he had gone to Canada like many Americans in that era to get away from being drafted and going to Vietnam. So that song was certainly inspired by the boyfriend that she had at that time. But Anne had a deep, deep romanticism to everything she wrote. She was greatly influenced by the Beatles. She loved Paul Simon. Um, you know, she she just loves everything romantic and velvety, and that's who she is as a person. I love that. And um, that's why we love her. Um, you know, she is is deep into that stuff. And so Magic Man is essentially her ode to her boyfriend at the time, um, who now, 40, 50 years later, still tells people he's the magic man. But he was. I mean, she loved this guy, and she wrote a love song to him in in a way. And that's the power of that song. I'm speaking to Charles R. Cross, Seattle-based music critic, about the album uh, Dreamboat Annie from Heart. Let's move on to the song Crazy on You. Crazy on You is a great example of, you know, Heart is very much a 70s band. Much of the template of how these songs work, and I'm not saying they didn't, Heart is one of the only bands to have had top 40 albums in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 
zeros. Um, for four decades, they had uh, best-selling albums, which is really unheard of for yeah. a band to never not be on the charts. But I still argue that there is something about heart. When we think of classic heart, we think of Crazy on You and Magic Man, there is a 70s sound. Like one thing about Dreamboat Annie, the song Dreamboat Annie appears three times on the album. So talk about the progressive weird influences where they're they're also making kind of art rock. They were very influenced by the Beatles and Sgt. Peppers. And, you know, with Dreamboat Annie, they wanted to do a concept album in a way. And it, it kind of is. Um, but the way Crazy on You is recorded, this is... Here's a guitar solo. Here's a verse. You know, this is classic 70s template. And it works. It works because it has a great guitar riff. It works because Anne just belts the sucker out. Nancy had joined the band. She wasn't initially in the band when oh, they I went didn't to realize Vancouver. That. Wow. She was in college in, in Oregon, and she left to come join the band. She essentially dropped out of college to join what at that point was her sister's band. Uh, but she has a big role now once she comes in because she brings more of an acoustic vibe. She was always more... It's not that she can't play great electric guitar, but she was... Anne was more the Joni Mitchell uh, influence in heart, whereas Anne was always more the Beatles or maybe a bit of a harder rock. Okay. Um, so Nancy has a big role in that and in, in many of her, um, the melodies she brings into heart make that band. It, it is ultimately the blood harmony. There's a chapter in my uh, book that I wrote with them called blood harmony. And you can't create that blood harmony. There is something about two sisters singing together or two brothers, the Everly brothers, you know, um, the Staples singers, you know, there, there is Their something DNA just... about the way they connect those voices when they're similar, but not quite right there. That is one of the greatest things in rock and roll is when you get two great sibling singers together and uh, you have that with Anne and Nancy. They sound better together than they do alone. Essentially with Dreamboat Annie, what you're getting there is you're getting these women coming of age and defining themselves on stage. And I still can't believe how powerful this record is that two women who grew up in Bellevue and that they could even imagine a world where they could front a rock band. That's, it doesn't sound so weird to us today when we look at the Grammys and we look at other things where, where, you know, women are, are voices in, in rock. But in right. 1975, this was a rarity. They were groundbreaking. And I think people underestimate that groundbreaking role that they played. Do they know the kind of influence they've had on Absolutely. other women. They're, okay. They, in, in a way, they can't. It, it's almost like if you went up to Obama and said, "Do you know what a great president you are?" He he can't. They they can't quite grasp that because that's just who they were. They didn't do it to be role models. Right. They did it because they always believed in themselves. And in fact, they didn't, if they would have known how impossible it was, they wouldn't have done it. The barriers that they went through and the crap they put up with being women in rock. But 
they did it because they believed in themselves and because they they imagined this world that they were the Beatles. They uh, went and saw the Beatles at just, you know, 50 yards from where we're sitting talking now at the Seattle Center Coliseum. They dressed up like the Beatles prior to seeing them. They had these costumes made that their mom had sewn where they look like the Beatles. And they had seen pictures earlier in the tour. So they went to the show wearing exactly the same costumes they thought the Beatles would have on stage. But the Beatles had two costumes and they went to the wrong show. They got the they got the costume from the next show, not the show they went to. Um, but it, it's, awesome. it's, just, it's it's really that is the moment, I think, when when Anne and Nancy both thought that they 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 didn't go to idolize the Beatles. They thought they were the Beatles, not that they were as big as Beatles or as important of the Beatles, but they thought of themselves with something to say. And that is what is inherent in heart and why these women are important in the history of rock and roll. The fact that they believe that when it really wasn't possible is one of the reasons that they're a great band. But it's also this music on this album and how much this lasts, you know, 40 years after it was done. This is still a wonderful record to put in your car. You're going to speed if Magic Man comes on your car. There is no doubt about that. And if Crazy on You comes on and you're on an open highway, you're going to be 20 miles hour, uh, hour over the speed limit. This is Sound and Vision. Let's continue our series, Northwest Classics, with a look at Soundgarden. KEXP DJ Marco Collins and music journalist and author Charles R. Cross chatted about Soundgarden's album Super Unknown, which was released in 1994. Black They were the first Northwest of the grunge era, if we want to call it that, to be have a recording deal. And they had a few records out before anything else broke. Yeah, this was, the, what, their fourth studio album? And yeah. what's crazy is that Soundgarden is the first Northwest grunge band to really form. Maybe they invented the genre, it could be argued. I mean, they kind of invented that drop D tuning thing, they did. right? And there are three major songs on this record with drop D tuning, which is what Nirvana later do. That's Black Hole Sun, Black Hole Sun. Spoon, Man, Spoon Man, and Let Me Down. Those are all drop D tuning. And that sound is really what the Northwest sound is. Of course, they recorded with Jack and Dino early on. Um, and that's in Dino's signature move. Let's try the song and drop detuning, um, which gives that darker, more thudding, ominous, dark clouds. I mean, when I think of the word grunge, I think drop detuning. Absolutely. That feels like Absolutely. grunge to me.
I mean, Soundgarden is an interesting band because their influences are more punk and early on, and then more metal. So they'd released a couple albums that were definitely in the heavy metal section of a record store when this record does not end up in the heavy metal record store. This record moves them to the front of the store. But let's set the stage for when this record comes out so people can remember this. This is creepy to think about. Super Unknown was released on March 8th, 1994, exactly a month later, On April 8th, 1994, Kurt Cobain's body is discovered. He had died three days before. So in a very creepy way, in a way, the guys in the band literally gave me this as a quote. They felt weird about it because they had just released this record. Nobody knew Kurt was going to die a month later. Right. But they had the fortune commercially to have a record that had just come out that was a Seattle record. And consequently, Kurt's death helped certainly sell in utero and helped sell a ton of MTV Unplugged when that record finally came out, but it also brought attention to Soundgarden. And they felt weird about that. They felt in in, in some ways... That's interesting. I've never heard anybody say that his death brought more attention to the music that was coming out of this scene. Oh, absolutely. Now that I think about it, it makes sense. The press, the... The amount of press. I sat down with uh, the guys in Soundgarden in December of that year. And at that point, Super Unknown's the biggest selling record in 1994. It outsells any, it outsells Pearl Jam, it outsells Nirvana in 1994. That's wild to me. And it, it, it was a monster record, but they felt weird about it. They felt like that something was sort of wrong about it. And here's a quote that Chris gave to me that I wrote down. And he felt at that time, Bizarrely, which is really interesting to think, he felt that they were not the big band in the area. So his quote was, it seems to me like we're probably a lot lower on the list of international perception of what this area, Seattle, means in terms of music, even though we've probably been more involved than most of the other bands in the history of this area musically. So what he's saying there is they're one of the first bands out, but that people don't think of Seattle as Soundgarden. Right. And it's probably true that they didn't prior to 1993 in other areas. But by 1994, with this record, Soundgarden is Seattle that year. Kurt dies. Pearl Jam's still a monster band. Um, but they're not making videos and they're kind of stepping back. And Soundgarden has their biggest commercial record. Super Unknown has sold 9 million copies. It's Soundgarden's biggest record by far. And it's a record that has an endurance, partially because it also, let's just be frank, has some incredible songs. Yeah. Uh, You know, Fell on Black Days and Black Hole Sun. If these aren't the two greatest Soundgarden songs, they are in the top five, most certainly. Let's talk about those in a minute. I want to talk about Spoonman. Talk about a Northwest-flavored song. I mean, that has the Northwest written all over it. It's about... Spoonman, artist the Spoonman, artist the Spoonman, who was and is was and is a Northwest legend, kind of the Ivar Hagland of street performers, <laughs> and uh, you know he would play at the Pike Place Market and he'd be around. He's a very very talented guy, very unique guy though, and they wrote a song about him.
And Soundgarden was so rooted in the scene, they never felt like they weren't ours. They always felt like they were Seattle's. Yeah. They held on to those roots, too. I feel like, you know, they're very respectful when they come to the Northwest. I mean, most of them live here, right? I mean, Chris didn't. Chris well, had moved away, but... When they came, and, they, they, nobody ever left ever than Chris. And, okay. And, the, you know, his legacy ends up very complicated because of things that have happened recently. But, right. but he, he was a Seattle guy. Even if he lived in L.A. or Miami, Chris Cornell was never not a Seattle guy. And bless his soul, rest in peace, Chris, but no matter what anybody wants to say, you should friggin' be buried in Seattle and this is your town and, and we're not letting you ever not be us and we miss you. Um, and, and I think I knew Chris better than almost anybody in the Northwest music scene of these people. And, uh, partially cause he'd been around for a long time. He didn't right. die until his fifties and his death might be one of the most upsetting of all the great one of the most shocking for me yeah. i thought that he you know there was a time where i was struggling on you know with mental health issues and addiction issues uh i ended up connecting with chris he played an acoustic set on my radio show in los angeles and he pulled me aside in the green room locked the door and asked me how I was. He had been sober for seven years at that point, and for no other reason, he just wanted to make sure I was okay. And at that point, I was like, I've, I've never really known this guy that well. And I just felt like he's really got it together. So when he passed, I just had no idea that was coming. Well, I thought he, I, I really thought he kind of had it together. I agree. I mean, I was shocked, but. Let's jump back and look at some of the messages, even on this album. Right. You know, a song like Suicide, you know, titled Like Suicide. Whenever I was with Chris, we talked a lot about darkness and depression, and Chris is dead now, but let's, we have all respect for him, but let's also be honest about his life. Here was a man who struggled with addiction, who struggled with drugs, and who struggled with depression. And that doesn't define who he was or what he created with his art. To me, his art is even greater knowing that he had all those things, right. but this stuff was inherent in his music and who he was. But here are some of the things Chris told me about the songs on these albums, you know, let me drown, as he said about crawling back to the womb to die. Um, I, I can't help almost not laugh. I'll say one other thing so about obvious. Chris Cornell is that he had this sort of ghoulish laugh uh, when he talked about this stuff, it, Kurt Cobain had sort of a similar thing where he could talk about very, very deep Dark. pockets and, and kind of laugh about when he was doing it. But, you know, fell on back days, he told me, was about realizing you're unhappy to the extreme. And now that he's gone, it sounds different to say that he said that. But when he said it, he was laughing at the point that he said it. I don't know. He 
he really was proud of this record, though. I know that. And, um, you know, one thing he said to me that year, at the end of that year, he said that, you know, for Soundgarden, he felt that they'd been categorized too often as a metal band. And now with this record, they were categorized, categorized as a pop band. And they weren't either. He always felt they were a punk band. But he said, to categorize us is kind of insulting. With this latest record, some people were saying, well, I was really surprised to hear this kind of record from you guys. And people were shocked by this record. And Chris's comment was, well, f- you too. That was his comment back. And he said, what's that supposed to mean? What are we supposed to make? Back in the black in the back too? Um, there had been this perception of Soundgarden. They'd been on A&M records and there'd been this perception that they were going to make butt rock. Right. They were and, a metal band. I mean, they were a metal band with melody. Right. They were. And what they did with this record is surprise everybody. And they made a record with depth and layers. Um, the reason these songs work, I mean, Fell on Black Days, that song I could listen to every single day of my life. It is the theme song to Seattle, more than Black Hole Sun. Um, that song, Fell on Black Days, the, the, the dark cloud sound of that captures the atmosphere of life in Seattle in more than any yeah. other song. Chris was, he never in my mind ever acted with ego. When he was in Seattle, he was a Seattle guy and he was shy. He felt in many ways, I think, that uh, music came to him, but he didn't. The other people that were in Seattle music really wanted to be frontmen. You know, they liked and came alive on stage. Chris, even in the height of Soundgarden, was still kind of shy. He never was grabbing the mic and I'm doing my deal. It was, there was always an elegance and kind of a, a little bit laid back approach he took. You hear that in the way he even sings Fallen Black Days. It's not like Lane Staley or Eddie Vedder. It did not have that same energy to it. Right. Um, but what an amazing singer. He could sing the phone book and it would sound great. I mean, Chris Cornell was just an unbelievable singer. And this record is not just Chris Cornell. It's Kim and Matt and Ben. It's a great band at the height of their powers. And it's 1994 Seattle. And unfortunately, it's, it, we're, we're never going to have this sound again. We're never going to hear Chris Cornell sing a new song. That, that breaks my heart every day when I think about it. But when I listen to this record, it, it brings me back to, to that time. That was music journalist and author Charles R. Cross speaking with KEXP DJ Marco Collins about Soundgarden's album Super Unknown as part of our series Northwest Classics. And thanks so much for listening. Please take a second to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It lets other people know this podcast exists. Special shout out to Joel, Trisha, and Mr. Loudy Pants for writing a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. They went the extra mile, wrote a review. I would love to thank you next on this podcast. So take two minutes of your time and write a review now. Also, again, please subscribe and rate the podcast. You can also go the extra mile and give a one-time $20 donation to this podcast at kexp.org slash sound. Well, that's all for now. Let's chat more next week.